0: The most dangerous place you can be as a trial lawyer is to think you've got it figured out. I'm still trying to get better. I still have the passion for it. I believe in it. Everyone can learn to do what I do.
1: And yet there's a group here that continues to get extraordinary verdicts.
0: Trial Lawyers University is revolutionizing, educating lawyers to be better
1: trial lawyers. It's been invaluable to me.
0: Trial Lawyers University, where the titans come to train. Produced and powered by LawPod's. All right. We're here with Steve DeBosier from, it's Baton Rouge, Louisiana, right? That's it. Baton Rouge, Louisiana. All right. And Steve and I have never met in person, but I've only heard of Dudley and DeBosier from a lot of people over the years, especially my friends from Louisiana and whatnot. And I'm especially impressed by them because there's not many firms that can grow to 60 plus lawyers and still be a fierce trial machine. And that's kind of what they've done at Dudley DeBosier. So, Steve, let me ask you, though, before we talk about what you're doing today, where did the revelation of the epiphany come to become a lawyer?
1: Well, it depends on how long you got. You know, for me, it it all started in high school. I have um, everybody's got their cross to bear. Mine is I'm, I'm full blown dyslexic, so I don't read very well. And I can't spell well enough to even have Apple iPhone tell me what I was trying to spell is how bad it is. And so in school, they kept saying you need to be a farmer. And I didn't want to be a farmer. All my family's all a bunch of engineers. And my dad's an engineer. Wanted me to be be an engineer. I'm the youngest of seven. So I said, I want to be a lawyer. And they kept telling me, you can't be a lawyer. And um, somehow I figured it out. So that's how I got here from early on. All right. Well, you're the youngest of seven. See,
0: I knew there's a reason. I'm the youngest of eight. Oh, my goodness. So I you know what it's like to be the baby. So I was about twelve. People called me the baby. The family I'm like, I'm not a baby. And then as soon as I said that, my mom would she'
1: she's not, he's not the baby. I'm like, I'm not the baby. <laughs> you still can be. I think my mom's ninety four. I think I'm still her baby. I, I think that still exists. Uh, your mom's ninety-four? Yeah.
0: Wow, you're lucky. My parents passed a dozen years plus ago, but that did allow me to free up my commitment to Michigan and get the hell out of there though. And And so life has its balances and its paths. Sure. Let's see. So you decide you want to become a lawyer when you're in high school because you don't want to be a farmer. Is that right? And so lawyer is the only other option to blend
1: in. One of the things, one of my little pet peeves now is when people come to me and say, look, I think my child wants to be a lawyer. I said, why is that? Well, because they argue with me. (laughs) Arguing is one thing. Successfully arguing is a totally different thing, Dan. Yeah. And so for me, it was, you know, I was on debate teams and things like that in high school, and I just, I enjoyed it. My other claim to fame is we started this school. I was, by happenstance, had started the first honors program, and there was 29 super smart people and me. So I rounded out the 30th of this super smart people, and they all were going on to be doctors. One of them uh, ran NASA that put Curiosity on Mars, and we get together, and I'm smart enough to know if somebody runs in the back of somebody, that's the person at fault. And so that's an ongoing joke with, with our guys, but they all, you know, I was with a bunch of people that had great aspirations in high school and I'd have my own as well. So that's how I got here.
0: And so after you go to uh, law school, is that, do you go to LSU? Absolutely. Uh, undergraduate and law school, LSU. Yeah. Those LSU people I've noticed, the ones that we go there are really passionate about their football. Is that true for you?
1: Well, we are the official injury lawyers of the LSU Tigers and the official injury lawyers of the New Orleans Saints. So, you know, we got a little passionate about our football down here.
0: Fair enough. Not just our hearts, but our checkbooks as well, you know. Right, because LSU and the Saints actually are a little short on cash, so they need your guys' support for sure. For sure. (laughs) So let me ask you, so you go and you get your bar card. So tell us about your journey from day one getting sworn in to – where you're sitting today with your partner, Chad, and what you guys accomplished.
1: Sure. So I didn't have, my family is middle class, probably lower middle class. I didn't have friends or family that were were lawyers. So when I got out of law school in Louisiana, you know, it's kind of who you're connected to. But I got a job. First job I had was I was actually the juvenile traffic judge. And so I was right out of law school, putting a robe on, administering $100 fines to these kids. And then this guy hired me to do the collection work. So then the first real lawyer job I had was doing collection cases for West Publishing. Now, you know what West Publishing is? That's the ones that print the, or they do the
0: search and the print the books for research and shit, whatever it is they do.
1: 30 years ago, they printed the books and they sent the advanced sheets to everybody. And so my job, like they paid me 50 cents a mile and 25% of my collections. And I traveled in my Mitsubishi galant around the state of Louisiana trying cases against lawyers that won't pay their $500 west bill. So <laughs> I could tell you I learned a shitload about uh, small towns, hometowns. I'd try these cases for $500 against these lawyers and then the the lawyer would sit there and the judge would say, "You come back." And I'd get to walk back to the judge's chambers and the judge would say, "No, not you. Th- this guy here from my local." And they'd make a decision as to how much this guy could pay and that's what the judgment would be. And so (laughs) I spent two years driving across. I loved it because I learned I was getting paid 50 cents a mile. That was awesome. And I get to go try a ton of cases as a very young lawyer against other lawyers. Now, if they can't pay their West Publishing Bill, that should probably tell you about the quality of that lawyer. hope I don't offend anybody. But I'm still getting to try cases all over the the state, and it was fun.
0: But in fairness to them, I think West kind of just sent people crap. And if you didn't send it back, you got a bill for it. So it wasn't quite the most. Oh, yeah. You know, I remember getting all that crap. like, I want all these updates. I don't give a shit. I don't even read this stuff. These are just for looks. Just to sit behind me, it
1: looks like I know what I'm talking about. It still cracks me up to this day when lawyers send those pictures and they put it on, on the uh, internet and it's them behind, you know, with a bunch of law books behind them. I'm like, oh, come <laughs> on. Dude. Really? Is that really? Yeah. But I left that job and I, I went to work for insurance companies. I went to do a defense farm billing an hour and working for insurance companies. Now I deal with insurance companies every day, but I truly hated them when I worked for them because they gave me shit every day. But they started to make me try their cases. So they would take cases from other lawyers and say, this guy didn't give a shit, go try this case. And I go try the cases. And one day they gave me a case on Thursday to try on a Monday for a week long jury trial. And then they sent me a letter after that I couldn't get all the time I spent on the weekend getting ready for it because I didn't get written pre-approval to bill the insurance company for the trial they gave me on Thursday to trial Monday. So I sent them a letter saying, please don't send me another case. And Dan, if you ever work at a big defense firm, associates are not supposed to send clients letters that say, please don't send me another case. And so I moved on to the plaintiff's side.
0: That was, how many years did you spend with the insurance defense? Four painful years, Dan,
1: four painful years. But it was part of your journey. How many cases did you try? I was reading some notes last night and actually getting ready to talk to you today. And sadly, I never anticipated that I'd be sitting here talking to you and hanging out with some really brilliant lawyers because I never really, I don't think I have an original idea. It's everything I have is from somebody else. So I never really kept track of it, but it was probably 30 or 40 jury trials. That's all I did was just go. Because lawyers in general hate trying cases. They just absolutely hate it. And I thought that everybody wanted to do that. I thought that's why people went to law school was to go try cases. But apparently I was wrong. <laughs> yeah, people don't want to do that. You know, most people don't want the stress of it. They don't want the risk of it. They don't want clients mad. I'm not exactly sure why. Maybe it's just the work, but I don't think it's the work. I think it's the stress. So that's my gut.
0: Well, it's stressful. It's extremely time consuming. It's completely obsessive if you give a shit. And where you you don't work, a lot of times, you know, people like myself, don't work out, don't eat right, don't sleep right, stay in court till five, take a couple hours off, take a nap, get up, work till midnight, one, wake up at five, get back to it. So it's understandable why somebody might not (laughs) want to avoid that lifestyle. It's not exactly what we call conducive to having a balanced lifestyle. I mean, there's no such thing as balance when you're in
1: trial. There's no balance. I mean, I try my best to get my thirty minutes of work out while I'm in trial, but you know, I'm staying in hotels all across the country and <laughs> who knows what kind of exercise equipment they may or may not have. And can you go walking in Wisconsin in, in December or running in December in Wisconsin? Probably not. So that's all you got.
0: So after you leave you join you start on the plaintiff's side, do you start Dudley Bozier at that point?
1: No, no. There was a friend of mine that had a plaintiff's practice and it was one of the original TV advertising law firms. And they were, I won't say the name because I don't want to offend anybody, but they were very much a settlement mill. And they called me and they said, look, we know that you've been trying these cases for this insurance company. Would you like to come do it for us? Well, we want you to try the cases. I'm like, well, that's what I want to do. So this is a pretty cool match. We met really good guys, good friends of mine. And they said, we're going to pay you based on what you kill. No salary, no draw, no nothing. You go kill and we'll pay you. And my first question was, can I put a cot in this office? Because that sounds like a great thing to me. We started trying cases and right out of the gate, they gave me a case. I was early 30s, maybe 32. And I got to try a case for a, a dentist who had a disability policy and got him over a million dollars with his jury trial. And I'm like, well, this is, this is easy. <laughs> it wasn't that easy down the road, but it was fun. It was fun start to go do all those things for somebody that actually cared. It was cool. Was that your first seven-figure verdict? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. What was your first eight-figure verdict? Verdict? It's a long story, but I have some judgments that are eight figures. But the first really one that really like stuck out to me is this one that we can talk about later down in New Orleans that I sent you the video of the uh, Lamborghini driving oh. killing somebody. Because what I found is that, and one of the things we can talk about you know, down the road is, we have a team of lawyers that really, I hate to use the word I, because it's really not I or me. It's this great team that does all these great things. And in the past few years, we've got verdicts of $247 million, $51 million. But we've had settlements of $10 million, $12 million, $8 million, And it's just crazy what insurance companies will pay if you work the case up. And so now we have all the stuff where they're flooded with all this information. And they go, man, we gotta, we got to pay this dumbass from Louisiana.
0: right. Because I know this everybody says the settlements, that's what keeps the place going. The verdicts is what keeps the settlements high. <laughs> because you get a verdict, that's just the beginning of the collection
1: process. And you have years more. In the- we could talk about this case later, but the, this verdict down in New Orleans after $51 million and the defense lawyer, younger lawyer that just represented the insurance company, called me and he goes, man, you were telling me stuff the whole time and I just couldn't really figure out what the hell you were talking about. But now I understand. I said, what is that? He said. You told me that settlements allow everything to get swept under the rug. But you were going to try this case no matter what, because the family deserved it. And then you said this thing to me, I'll never forget it, is that verdicts and judgments are like turning the lights on and watching the cockroaches scatter. And the cockroaches are scattering, brother. (laughs) So I'm like, yes, there's a lot of truth to that, right? And so you have to have some trials. Otherwise, you're not going to get good settlements.
0: Yeah, that's what the word on the street is. Like speaking of... Trials, though, in your career, like which trial to you? There's always one, you know, I think that stands out the most for whatever reason the client, the verdict, the story. Which one stands out the most in your mind of your entire career? Like, trial
1: you're most proud of. I really, it's a shame to admit this, but I remember facts, but I don't remember people's names. There's some people I do remember, and I've had. A lot of verdicts over a million dollars, but I had one case that I'll never forget because this sweet old lady was holding a child at a little league baseball game, and the baseball, a line drive baseball, hit her in the face and broke her eye orbital. And the verdict of this case is three hundred fifty or four hundred thousand dollars. But the thing that was most impressive is they're like. The judge is telling me you're going to put an end to little league baseball and the defense lawyers are losing their mind. That's what happens when you get to go to baseball fields. And they hired an expert that on the stand said, Steve, the fence is three feet tall. If the code required it to be six feet tall, it would say it shall be six feet tall. So I said, Can we all agree that if the fence would have been six feet tall, this lady wouldn't have got hit? He said, Yeah. I said, Well, let's look at the code. And they pulled it up, and the code said, It shall be six feet tall. And I highlighted the shall. And he looked at me and he said, Not Mr. DeBoger, Steve, you're embarrassing me in front of these 12 people. You're making me look like an idiot. And that's when I learned to be a real lawyer because the fight in me wanted to say, Because you fucking are an idiot. But I didn't. I went down, took a deep breath, I sat in my chair and I said, I have no desire to make you look like an idiot. I have a desire. For these 12 people to know what the truth is can you tell them the truth and he said the fence should have been six feet tall i said thank you sorry if i made you look bad and so that to me it was a small verdict but it taught me a valuable lesson of you know if you're going to be an asshole to somebody why does the jury need to be an asshole why does the jury need to punish somebody why does the jury need to take action if you're taking the action for them and so for me that, i'll never forget it So. We were talking about your career, though, and you started at a
0: mill and started trying cases for them, and getting verdicts. So I assume you were trying. They wanted to turn their mill into a machine. That's what I think happens when these high volume advertisers decide, "Hey, we're going to get some trial lawyers." Because you know, I work with a lot of firms who are, are high volume but don't try a lot of cases, but want to start trying cases because they recognize that they can have all the cases in the world, but until they start trying cases, they're never going to get much value. From them. How many years do you spend at this this place trying cases? About
1: six or seven years or so. The two people I was partners with ran into a little bit of trouble and they got disbarred. I did mean, <laughs> not want them to be disbarred. i close friends with these guys that didn't want that, but they did. And they're like, you know, me and my partner, Chad Dudley and James Pelletier said, what are we going to do? I'm like, well, we're going to take this over. It was pretty scary because we had a bunch of employees and a bunch of lawyers and you may not know this, but when somebody gets disbarred and they're the person on TV, the cases stop coming in pretty quickly. And so we, we ran into some pretty significant problems and financial crisis and things like that. But, but you know, it's interesting. You said you work with firms that have, have a lot of cases and a lot of lawyers. But what's interesting 15, 20, 25 years ago, a lot of those law firms could do the settlement mill. But now the world's gotten a lot smaller because of things like. Google reviews and whatnot, you know, everybody can know if that lawyer is doing a good job or not. And they figured out smartly that you can get control your cost per case of how much a case comes in the door. But that variable is very small. The biggest variable is how much you get for the case. So the difference between what you get on an average case versus what you pay for an average case is where a firm can grow. And we figured it out really out of necessity more than anything else. We have so many cases. We got to make them as big as possible. And so my partner, Chad, and I spent a lot of time across the country coaching law firms of stop doing it the old way, except the fact that you got to put some people in the courtroom to make a difference, to get that average fee up. I won't bore you with all that, but it's days of conversations.
0: Right. But just to get clarified, though, when do you guys start? When do you and Chad, and you mentioned a third fella start
1: Dudley DeBosier? 2009. June of 2009. Was Chad with you at your old firm that imploded? Yes. James Pelche and I were litigators, and we had seven or eight, maybe 10 lawyers. And then Chad was our operational guy. He was our CEO, maybe, if you had a title or not, but office manager or whatever. He's absolutely brilliant, man. He's one of the most smartest people that you'll ever meet. If you want to ask him how to run a law firm, he's your guy. And so, well, for me, I just want to litigate cases. I don't want to deal with all the bullshit of an office, right? And so he goes, "I don't want to do what you do," and I'm, I don't want to do what you do. And so we worked out perfectly.
0: That is a good connection because I hated running a firm when I ran it. I just wanted to be the lawyer, but then there was nobody running the firm, so it wasn't really a. It wasn't really a. Um, let's just say it could have been run better, but you know what you know, and that's all you can do especially when you're younger and trying to, you know, survive, trying to figure it out, figure it out. So now Dudley de Now you guys have how many lawyers at Dudley de Approximately like 60,
1: 62. I was looking up while you were asking me, we have 62 and we have offices and about seven or eight, nine offices that keep growing. And we're in, you know, we're managing firms in Kentucky and Georgia and St. Louis, Missouri and Dallas, Texas and Salt Lake city, Utah. Just keep growing.
0: So besides having Dudley debozier, you have a, is it called, you have CJ advertising?
1: Yeah, it's a great story. Or at least I think it's a great story.
0: Well, why don't you tell me and then I'll let you know if I agree with you. There you go. You be the judge. I'll be the judge.
1: When we took over the firm in 2009 and became Dudley Debozier, we didn't know anything about advertising. We knew about trying cases, but we didn't know anything about how to get the cases in the door. And our biggest asset was the previous law firm's ad agency, CJ Advertising, out of Nashville. And so we naturally went to them and said, Well, you do our stuff. And they're like, Yeah. And so we're cruising along. Things are going great. Cases are coming in the door. And the owner, who's a great guy, Arnie Malham, said, I just don't want to do this anymore of CJ Advertising. He said, I just want to, the term he used was, I want to land the ship. And we panicked. We're like, What are we going to do? We've never had to deal with that part of the business. And so we asked him, Instead of landing it, would you just sell it to us? And he said, sure. And it wasn't that easy. It took us probably a year to to work out all the details and whatnot because they were representing 50 law firms across the country. And then, you know how lawyers are, they're super suspicious and super competitive. And all of a sudden, this firm that's growing out of Louisiana is going to buy the ad agency that's representing people all over the country. But it's worked out great. And we have just been absolute gangbusters. And there we put this lady who's one of the most incredible people you ever want to meet, Mickey Love. She runs CJ Advertising, and she is unbelievably incredible. And so we spend, as I was telling you earlier, for us, it's hugely important the success of our clients, the law firms. We do annual planning sessions and periodic planning sessions throughout the year with each one of those 50 law firms to make sure that they're kicking ass. And they are kicking ass.
0: Well, besides CJ Advertising, you guys even started your own uh, conference. Yep. What's that about? I run a conference, and so I know how much work it is to put on a
1: conference. and so It is a ton of work. So there's two conferences that we run right now. One is called Double Your Average Fee. As I told you earlier, there's only so much you're going to pay to get a case in the door. If you really want to be profitable and you want to have a successful firm, you got to figure out how to get that up there. So we did these essentially 10 steps that – got us to where we are. And then we went back and said, what order would we put these in if we knew what we know now, right? We all wish we could go back in time and figure stuff out. We did. We sat down and said, if we did it, we would do it in these 10 steps. And then we thought, well, why don't we just tell people this is what we did. This is how we got there. Because at the time when we started, our average fee was $5,000 a case. And now the average fee is $27,000 a case. So for us to increase that, we uh, let's just go teach people. So that's one of them. The other one is a company that we created. It's called Accelerator. And so what we do is, we get into firms that are great lawyers, great litigators, super smart people, but don't want to run their business. So we kind of run the the backside of their office, in which Chad manages that, Mickey Love manages that, and then James and I spend our time trying to find their best cases and help them maximize those, those cases. So that's been pretty cool. So then we have a conference, I think it's just once a year. It just happened in Vegas with, with you guys in your hometown, I think last month, September, I guess we're in November, in September. We just get a bunch of people in there to teach them how to fish. It's a lot less about trying cases, which I enjoy doing. That's more the double your average fee. Accelerate is much more nuts and bolts of how to run a law firm. Lawyers and doctors are pretty shitty at running businesses as a general rule. That is the understatement of the century. <laughs> I was case in point when
0: I used to run my own little firm. That's why I don't anymore because it wasn't well run and it wasn't very profitable. Let's just put it that way. Oh yeah. And it was an 80 hour week job that I didn't particularly enjoy. So <laughs> I'm glad I don't have to do that anymore, but it's also great because there wasn't anybody around like you guys back when I was trying to figure it out. It's so crazy. Cause I always tell people like this day, this time is the greatest time to become a trial lawyer because everything is accessible. All the strategy you could ever want, all the knowledge you could ever want is out there. There's books, there's trial guides, there's, I have a video platform called TLU On Demand that has you know, literally thousands of hours of video on it. Plus we get the transcripts, pleadings, PowerPoints for every case. So it's, you, know, you get the lawyer who got the verdict, Breaking it down for you, explaining it, and then giving you all the documentation of the journey. It's like if you can't figure stuff out and then, too, but like actually learning the skills of it, that's the challenge for most people. It's like this intellectual part is one part of it, but being a great trial lawyer is like being like a quarterback. you got to know the defensive schemes. you got to know your offensive schemes. But if you don't get out there and practice with pads on and people coming at you at full speed and to get ready for the game, well, when it's game time, you're most likely going to get pretty nervous and shit your get in where it fucks up your thinking. And if you get too nervous, I mean, you get it's one thing to care, but it's another thing to get all panically like most lawyers do. So I watch so many trials like on CBN and just in general, when I have a chance to go to the courthouse and most lawyers are just not very good presenters at all. And some people are like, well, how do they get big verdicts? I'm like, because the defense is so many times worse.
1: There's some that are really, really good, but the vast majority of them are are not very good. And also they have so much to lose. You know, you think about it. I tell lawyers all the time, if you go fight for somebody on the plaintiff's side and you go lose that case, they're still going to love you because they've never had anybody fight for them in their life. They'll be pissed at the judge or the defense lawyer or the jury or whatever, but they're not mad at you because you're in there fighting for them. But a defense lawyer loses a case, they might lose a client for the whole firm. Then the firm, they're not part of that firm anymore, right? They're on their road. The truth is, is that now is in my opinion, the greatest time to be a trial lawyer because of the things you said. That the accessibility. When I started doing this, I was fucking up cases all the time because I didn't have a mentor, I didn't have anyone to really say. Here's what you're doing wrong. Here's how, you know, if I got a bad verdict, I blame the client. And if I got a good verdict, guess who i congratulated? Oh, look how great you are. My mentor is Don Keenan. When I first told him, I said, look, I lost this case. But the jury told me after, they said, if I ever need a lawyer, I'm hiring you because you're awesome. And I felt really good about a zero verdict against me because the jury liked me. Don's was like, you're an idiot. You made it about you and not about your client and the 12 people. And that's why they said that. I was like, well, okay, now I can really feel bad about my zero verdict. <laughs> but he's right. I mean, so now you have, there's so much information out there. You're presenting so much great information to the public. Don Keeney my mentor. He's awesome uh, with The Edge. You got Brian Panish doing cool stuff. Keith Mitnick writing books. You have Nick Riley doing great stuff. I don't leave anybody out, but there's so many people I've learned from. And when I talk about things, somebody asked me, where'd you get that? And the one thing I tell them is, not from me. It came from some other source. I'm just not smart enough to remember where it came from. So whoever I don't give credit to, I'm sorry, but it wasn't from me.
0: Yeah. No, it, Which is so great too, because like all the information. And so I was telling people, the only reason if you don't become a great trial lawyer is because you chose not to put the time in and put the work in. And that's fine. That's fine. It's not for everybody. Most people do, they want a balanced life. They want the work, you know, whatever. And I'm like, good luck if, and being a trial lawyer too. Good luck. I, I doubt it's going to happen.
1: It won't happen for those people, and the hardest part is people to accept that, right? People want to put on their title, you know, on their email string, trial lawyer or senior trial lawyer. You don't try cases. Quit lying to yourself and everybody else. Just say I'm really good at getting documents. I'm really good at doing depositions. I'm just not a trial guy. There's okay. There's plenty of room for that. It really is. We got some great people that at our office right now that don't want to be in a courtroom, but they are incredibly great at doing everything else. Of which, I mean, could you imagine me trying to do this job, being full-blown, dyslexic, trying to read depositions all day long? Well, shoot my head up, sucks, but you got to have great people doing great things. And if you ever talk to Chad, he'll tell you, we built our law firm on each other's strengths and not our weaknesses. And so once you figure that out, life's a lot easier. Especially if you're going to try bigger cases. I always consider like, trying bigger cases,
0: because you need a team. It's like hunting woolly mammoths. Some people got to dig the hole, put the stakes in. Some people got to scare the the mammoth in the right direction. I mean, without everybody working together, though, you're going to get killed by that big animal. Whereas if you're out getting rabbits, well, you can go get rabbits by yourself. But you want to go big game hunting, you need a team of effective hunters with you.
1: Oh, I mean, I I used to try cases where the defendants, there's big law firms are filing briefs and everything all through the course of the trial. And I'm like, shit, I... I'm here. I can't do that. And so now I have a team that does demonstrative evidence. I have a team that does all the research. I got brief writers from every law school I can find. They're sitting there just waiting for the call to go, what do I need to do? Well, file a brief on this and file a motion on this, file a writ here. And having that team at the end of the day makes me look great. But the truth is, it's not me. It's the whole team that makes it happen.
0: Yeah. you got Everybody at the top has a great team. Like Panish, he's got a great, I mean, everybody I know that is at the top of their game as a team. Speaking of people at the top of their game though, Steve, I know that you've got yourself quite a ways in your career. And as you climb this ladder of success, folks tend to hang out with and get to know other folks that are at a similar level. So the folks that you know that are at the top of this trial game, what would you say are the maybe three or so four characteristics that they have in common that you see constantly within folks at the top of this game?
1: There's so many, and so three is is difficult to say because each one of these people, I've spent the most time with Don Keenan, who's really made my life so much better, made me so much better of a trial lawyer. And David Ball has done some great stuff for me over the years. It's just they're all tenacious. But one of the things that I find most incredible is that they're willing to listen. And to me, that is the one thing that lawyers just suck at the most. They take depositions and they don't listen to the answer. They're sitting and doing a jury selection and they're so worried about what they're going to ask next that they don't listen or see the body language of the person. So all these lawyers are really good at stopping and listening to what's going on so that they can respond or react appropriately versus let me tell you what the right way to do it is no matter what. That's a tough way to, to live life. So I spend my time with groups of lawyers and you know, they keep looking at me going, tell us the answer. I'd rather you tell me the answer. I'll tell you if I agree or disagree, but let's work together to get a solution. Because one of my ongoing mottos is I can fool one of those jurors. I can always pull that off, but I can't fool 12 of them. So I need to know what are all the holes in this case and what do I need to figure out? I put my blinders on and I'm steamrolling into a case. And I got people, I got a lawyer that works for me that his sole job is like, You're about to fuck this up. Let me me tell you what you got going wrong. And sometimes I agree, sometimes I don't, but having that kind of access is great. So for me to stop and listen to me is probably the most important thing any real trial lawyer can do. And a lot of them don't do. And
0: I always consider like, I have this like listening is the bridge. Like when we, especially like jury selections, like them listening to you is a bridge toward them, but you listening back and truly listening, that builds the connection. And I got a chance to study so many great trial lawyers throughout the pandemic because trying to figure out, because you talked about mentors and stuff. And I always kind of laugh when I go to conferences and people come and they sometimes thank me for doing all these programs during the pandemic and how much it helped them. And I was kind of laugh to myself because I was doing it mostly for me. You know, I was student ground zero, trying to figure this stuff out, trying to utilize this time so that when that time ended, I could have a lot, greater basis of knowledge and information in order to uh, get into the trial game. When By studying all these people, realizing, trying to figure out what it is that you need to get these big verdicts. And from all that studying, I came up with, it was three things that you need to get big verdicts. Guess what they
1: are? <laughs> a big case, a lot of insurance. <laughs> <laughs> you need a good case, right? <laughs> I would say that, you know, not to be politically incorrect, but this
0: isn't Trump world. You can't just make shit up. You can't just make facts up. You have to have a good case. Right. So it all starts with a good case. But once you got a good case, there are a lot of people with good cases to get shit verdicts or shit settlements, right? Because when you have that, then you got to have trial strategy. And that takes years to figure out. you got to read books. you got to have a mentor. Like you got it from Don Keenan and other folks. you got to know which, how much, which, how if you get a thousand pieces of evidence... What hundred does a jury need to see and in what order? How do you sequence an examination? How do you sequence witnesses? How do you sequence an opening statement? When do you talk about your client? When do you talk about damages? How do you frame all that stuff? That's all trial strategy. And that's key. And there's great strategists. But the third thing that every great trial lawyer focuses on once once they stand up in court is their connection with the jury. That's it. It all begins and ends with their connection with the jury. Everything's about the jury. It's not about... Cut this, so they cut witnesses, they cut examinations. Why? Because I thought the jury got it. They didn't need it anymore. I could just feel it. And the connection with the jury is the whole game. And listening, you listening to that jury and truly listening is where that connection really begins and ends. Because if you don't, everybody can feel it.
1: Dan, you know, I want to tell you, that's what I meant by listening. It's not just the words people say, but to actually be engaged with that person. When I've done interviews like this before and they've asked me, how'd you get to where you are? A lot of it's just experience in doing it. As I tell people, I don't walk into a courtroom and wonder what turnstile I'm going to go through. That doesn't occupy a space in my brain of do I have the right shoes on or none of that goes through my brain. It is juror number five told me during selection that they like cats. How's that going to help my case or hurt my case and what do I need to do about that? And so for me to stop and go, I want to be right here with them and to teach them what this case is about And that's all I want to be. I don't want to be anymore. I don't want to be an advocate and tell them what they should do. I just want to say, here's where you should look. Here's the most important information that I see. And you talk about 100 documents. You know, one of the people I unfortunately left out was Mark Lanier, who's absolutely incredible, right? I went to his conference and uh, I know a good friend of mine, Jerry Parker, his law firm in, in New York, was in charge of the data collection of this Actos trial, which happened to be 45 miles from my house. So I went and watched it. There was 33 million documents in like 25 different languages. And Mark tried that case. I'm pretty sure with nine documents, you you ought to ask him, but I'm pretty sure it was just nine documents of 33 million documents. That's impressive to be able to take all that consolidated into because it's like if you watch a, a movie with a trial in it, how long is the trial in the movie? Thirty minutes, maybe at the most. But we want to go try cases for weeks on weeks in the jury. My goal is once I got the jury pissed at the defendant, I want to get, I want to get them in the deliberation room as fast as I can. Howard, I can do it if I got to cut witnesses, if I got to cut testimony, whatever it is.
0: That's so funny you say that because Panish just got a massive one hundred thirty five million dollar verdict, and he goes, "They only were out two hours." He's like, "They didn't have time to go home and cool off." He's like, "They were pissed off." Oh yeah, <laughs> you got to keep them angry. Keep them angry when they're pissed they get in there and get that heartache. number.
1: I'll give this guy a ton of credit. It's Todd Niesenholtz in St. Louis. And him and I were working on this case together. And just, we, I mean, we'd spend hours just dissecting it. And it was a case in which massage therapy place, the guy was, however you want to describe it, doing some bad shit to the female people. And then, it's a very long story, but there were six people that came clean about what this guy was doing. And the owners knew it. And they actually bailed him out of jail and put him back into this position. I can't talk too much about all the how it all happened, but because it's on appeal right now. But Jerry awarded two hundred and forty-seven million dollars, and I kept thinking, "Holy crap, Todd! How is that? You know, that's just so amazing." About no one's dead, no one's lost an arm or a leg, no one has a terrible brain injury. They were just violated. I don't mean to take a credit, a pain away from the people that affected, but. million, and it was because they were furious with the people that allowed this to happen. Understandably so.
0: That's despicable conduct. In any state of the union, that's despicable (laughs) conduct. Even in Missouri, what are you telling me? So listening is number one. What's number two for these commonalities of the greats? For me,
1: it is. The term we use at our office is give a shit. And you can use that in any form or fashion. We've learned that give a shit Really makes people understand what you're asking of them, and is you can't teach give a shit. You see the people that if you go to a Christmas party, they're over here talking about you know what clothes they're wearing or decorations or you know where they're going on vacation. The true passionate trial lawyer is talking about what we do. I mean, that, they are just it never leaves their soul. They're they're not sitting there going, "How am I going to fill out this deposit slip on this case?" They're looking at it going, how do I get the most justice for the person I'm lucky enough to represent? And that's it. I mean, it is just pure passion and drive. It is like, man, I, I want these assholes to be responsible for what they did to my client. And it's rare do you see a defense lawyer act that way. They're trying to figure out you know, how much more can I bill in this case. But the true great lawyers are like, man, I, I haven't even thought about the money. I've only thought about justice. Give a shit. All right.
0: Give a shit. After give a shit, what's number three, Steve, in the Steve DeBozier world? Listening, giving a shit.
1: And the other part about it is, and we've touched on it, is that the people that are willing to do the work. It's always astonishing to me that people say, I'm really good at this. I'm just going to go in trial and wing it. You can do it, and there's some people that are good enough to do it, but man, you just absolutely have to do the work. I mean, it has to be... This case I tried down in New Orleans with this Lamborghini driver, I mean, I spent hours and hours and hours with that team, days of just dissecting every single question, getting the question exactly the way I wanted it so he would disagree with it, so I could play the video of his deposition where he looks like an asshole. And it was just endless, and my team was going crazy about it, and then put closed captioning at the bottom of his video just so that I could make sure that none of the jurors missed a word this guy said, and it was just a ton of work. It was endless amounts of work, and now we have a better system to do it, but man, it's that kind of dedication to getting it right is really where great trial lawyers happen because you can be great, but if you don't know all the details and all the small facts that make a difference, if you're, you know, Mark Lanier, if you don't know the nine documents and know those nine documents of every word on there so you're not caught off guard, you want to know it, you want to live it, and do the work to get there. So It's just
0: hard work. It definitely takes a lot of work. And you've gotten quite a long ways in your career, but and you started out with humble beginnings. But for new lawyers who are starting out in this game, people are just getting their bar cards because the uh, you know, bar results just came out in California a few days ago. So there's a lot of new lawyers out here in California. And I know from looking at Facebook and Instagram that a lot of people have just got their bar card. So for folks that just got their bar card, And somehow they get some harebrained idea that they want to be trial lawyers and not just transactional lawyers or whatever kinds of other lawyers there are. I don't even know. But what advice would you give them? Especially if they want to get from A to most people want to get from A to Z, and they don't want to take what have you been practicing now almost thirty years? Take thirty years to get there.
1: Thirty years in October. So yeah, it would be you're kind of halfway there in the sense that they have to know what they wanted to do. And so I do have the luxury of speaking to a lot of law schools. I speak to a lot of high schools. And really, for me, if you just stopped and thought about it, what life do you want to live? And if you're not passionate about what you do, you're going to be miserable. So if you just took a a 40-hour-a-week job, it's a little different now with Zoom. Maybe you can do it by video. But if you took a a 40-hour-a-week job, which doesn't really exist for lawyers, right? But if you think about the time getting ready, driving to work, you know, getting there, stopping off, getting a cup of coffee, whatever you're doing, if you do the math, and I won't do it, spike boards here, I write everything out, but half of your waking hours are doing your job. So if you don't love what you do, what you're really doing is throwing your life away. You're throwing half your life away. And don't forget, if you hate your job, the other half that you're awake and you're not your job, what are you really doing? You're pissed about your job, right? I mean, this sucks. So people that want to be great trial lawyers, they have to stop and go, why do I want to be there? And if it's my daughter, who's sophomore in school, she was going to architect school and now she wants to be a lawyer. And she says, I want to do what you do. And I said, well, there's no, there's no application for what I do. I mean, you can be a lawyer, but to be a trial lawyer, you have to say, I'm willing to commit the time, effort, and energy, right? I have these lawyers that come to me and go, I can handle that $1 million dollar case. Tell me about the other trials you had. Well, this would be my first. Oh, you think that client deserves you? You think that's fair to them? That their million, everything in their whole life rests on this one case. And you're the person that you think should try that case? And when you put it that way, they're always giving the same answer. It's like, well, maybe not. Maybe I need some help. Oh, good. So my suggestion would be, there's lots of cases I don't want to handle. I've done them. In one year alone, I tried 24 bench trials against all state Twenty-four. And some of them were three point two thousand dollar cases. I, I mean three point two, I mean that correctly, three thousand two hundred dollars. But that's why I was learning. I mean, that's where I was getting my repetitions of just trying these small cases that no one else wanted to try. And so that's what they should be doing. They should be looking at going, what can I do to be passionate about this? And then where can I go? Cause they're everywhere in California, right? There's all these cases that the big law firms don't want to handle. They don't want to, right? But who's handling them? And then if you go to them and show them you can kick ass on those cases, then that same law firm's like, hey, maybe you can work on our bigger cases. So, But you got to, you know, everybody these days kind of want, they want it all right now. You can't have it all right now in litigation world. It's just not possible. Because you are going to worry about what turnstile you walk through, and you're going to worry about, you know, am I sitting in the right spot, and is the judge mad at me, and all this other kind of shit that's unnecessary
0: at least for a while <laughs> for a while you can worry about things until you get comfortable. It takes reps though, but also I think people think that, oh, if I try a lot of cases, I'm going to get a lot better. And that's like playing a lot of golf and you're going to get a lot better. That's not necessarily true. Probably not. If you want to get better at trying cases, obviously got to prepare, but there's also the skills of presentation that you have to work on, whether you, whatever it is you do, you know, whether you think doing improv is going which isn't a bad thing, it helps you get on your feet, get more comfortable. Presenting. I know for a lot of folks doing um, a lot of focus groups, like Sean Claggett, a buddy of mine, he really pushes focus groups. And I think those are all great, but it's like to me, I think to get great at something, you have to be doing something with intention, with deliberation. And, you know, and like I teach a a workshop or a boot camp where, you know, really focus on the nonverbal communication, you know, controlling your facial expression because they're staring at your face the whole time. And most people's faces are somewhat robotic and neutral, you know, they ask a question, it's still, or they're,
1: pissed and, you know, or they're sitting down there and you think that the other lawyers talking. And so why do I care? Sean Claggett's a friend of mine. He's a great guy over there in, in uh, Vegas. You got Ben Cloud, He's another great friend of mine. Great trial lawyers. And they understand that. And so for us, yeah, we've hired great lawyers that turn out to do a great job from district attorneys offices, you know, across the country. But what we found with those guys is that they've got a lot of trial experience, but as you pointed out, not great trial experience, right? Because they don't know how to get ready for a trial because they never had to, right? They just, they don't have time to. They get a stack of files and they walk in there. You know? So it's great to teach one part of it, but you're not teaching the other part, which is all the hard work that goes into this to be ready for it. You're good at winging it.
0: And most prosecuting attorneys, they don't have to really prepare too much because it's the same case over and over what happened next and you got juries that are willing they're already ach- aching to convict and cops that are willing to lie so it's not really a hard job you don't need a lot of creativity you don't they don't write they don't make too many movies about prosecuting attorneys because there's really not much of a challenge there no it's not people are like oh, i am gonna hire prosecutors because they have a lot of courtroom experience i'm like yeah Getting layups. The judge is a former prosecutor who's helping them. As soon as the defense lawyer starts getting anywhere ahead of them, the judge usually starts putting their foot on, you know, their finger on the scale because they can't help themselves. In a lot of situations, I'm not saying all situations, but former criminal defense lawyer tried well over 150 cases. It was just like it was just the inequity of so many judges on the criminal courts was just despicable. So many, not all, but so many that would just put their thumb on the scales if they thought the prosecutors getting their ass kicked for whatever reason they couldn't help themselves. But
1: oh, I, I can imagine. I, I've only tried one case de- as a criminal defendant my life, but I can imagine. But I will tell you, it's very similar. And luckily for all of us plaintiff lawyers, the pendulum is swinging back a little bit. But back when I was a young defense lawyer, my goodness, that was such bad training because I could just stand there and wait till the, the plaintiff finished their opening statements, and then I go. Did he ask for $250,000? I mean, I want $250,000. Do y'all want 250 grand? I mean, everybody wants 250 grand. But I mean, is this case worth $250,000? And I'd sit down. You know, obviously it's a little bit more of that, but essentially it was hunting in a baited field. I mean, you got a jury that already doesn't want to give me money for anything. And then you're asking for a ton of money and you're like, man, this is bullshit. Why are we all here? Because this one person wants money? Sure. It took those experiences to say, it's got to be a better way.
0: Especially because most, a lot of criminal defense lawyers go into criminal defense because they have no other options or, and so they're not very good. They're winging, you know, talk about lack of preparation. You see so many court appointed attorneys when I used to practice back in Michigan and they would just turn and burn clients like, like they weren't even human. It was crazy. The lack of thought on it, but it is what it is.
1: I don't know enough about it to make any comment other than it just, it seems unfair to me. I thought
0: so too. I thought so too. So we're going to do a some webinars on some of your cases because eventually you're when um, June rolls around here, June 5th through 8th, you're going to come to Huntington Beach. You don't even know how great it is yet because I know you've been to a lot of conferences, and but this is going to be the greatest trial lawyers conference you've ever been to in your life. I guarantee it without a doubt. Not only because it's a great, like the hotel is amazing because where it's at, on the ocean, and it's a boutique hotel, and everyone's got an ocean front and a balcony, which is, and the food's great. But some of the greatest trial lawyers are coming to Huntington Beach and to teach, to really teach, not just to talk about their own greatness, but truly try to empower folks to get better. Because we have four lecture tracks and at least seven workshop tracks, probably like eight or nine, because they have suites and stuff that we can convert. But
1: tell us, in Huntington Beach, what do you plan to teach? Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me. I looked at the lineup when we first talked and I thought, man, these are some incredibly great lawyers. I mean, I, some of my people that are mentors, I, maybe it's a weird habit, maybe it's a good habit. When I read their books, I call them and say, hey, you got a second to talk. And they all want to talk. I mean, they've done, they busted their ass writing this book. And so I've gotten to know some of those guys and they're just incredible lineup. So thank you for me. Being part of that to me is, quite frankly, just a great honor. So I'm excited about it. But for me, it is, I've been involved in some massive cases. Just had another one, you know, a few months ago for $410 million. Not me, but just some guy I work with, did it, a great lawyer in Louisiana. And for me, we can talk about those cases. And that can give somebody the ideas of where they can ultimately be. But a million dollars shouldn't be like some magical threshold, where people go, oh, if I can make a million dollars on a case, that, that should be it. It's, you know, the opportunities far exceed that. But the other part is, is that I deal with lawyers all the time. They have an inventory of cases, which, by the way, I can't believe I just use that word because I hate referring to clients as inventory, but they have these cases, right? And they want to know, how do I maximize these cases? So really, I want to spend some time on some of the bigger verdicts and how we got there and what triggered a jury to award that kind of money, but also... I really would like to spend some time on some of the smaller cases. We just finished one for $1.1 $1. $1 million on a slip and fall case where a lady slipped on the stairs of her own condo. And so those type of cases where the people in the audience can go, I have those cases, I can identify with those cases, and I can go back and give a shit about those clients and maximize those cases. That to me, I think would be a cool experience for a lot of your listeners. I'm assuming your audience is younger lawyers that are trying to learn, which, by the way, never ends. But those kind of cases, I think, would help a lot.
0: Well, they're not quite there. Some are younger. Some are older. Some are all, they're all over the board. Oh, That verdict of $410 million that you said, a friend of yours, is that Todd Townsley? No, Todd was involved
1: in that case, too. It's Trey Moore. Right. Yeah. Trey, who's a great guy, a great lawyer. He's you know as country as you can get and just a good-hearted dude. And Todd uh, Townsley did help him on that case, too. He called me, he goes, man, how do you get a jury to award $50 million on somebody that died instantly? I'm like, well, it wasn't about the death. It was about everything that led up to And We talked a lot about it. Then I get a text from him that says 410 something. I said, what is 410? He goes, that's what the jury awarded. I'm like, oh man, I'm sorry. He goes, no, no, 410 million. I'm like, oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. Yeah, But it was a meth addict driving a truck. And so somebody taught me this as everything else. But here's where I spend a lot of time on this one concept is what is the jury going to be frustrated about and why do they act? And I use the movie Jaws, you know, the movie Jaws.
0: I have seen, believe it or not, because I think you and I are about the same age. So I have seen, I was terrified for the movie
1: Jaws when it came out. So you might know the answer to this, but who's the villain in Jaws? Who's the villain in Jaws?
0: Hmm. Obvious one would be the shark, but it's not the shark. So, not the shark. Everybody says the shark. The shark,
1: the shark scares the shit out of people, right? I don't know if there's a worse way to die than being gobbled up by a shark starting at your ankles, right? But the shark is doing shark-like things, right? The shark is eating what's in the water with it, right? Just like a meth addict drives a truck if you let him, because the meth addict does meth, right? A heroin addict does heroin. We just can't put them on the road with other people, right? So who's the villain? The person that put them on the road. It is the mayor of Amity that when they said, hey, there's a big man eating shark out there. And he says, until you can prove it to me, I'm going to put the people in there with the meth addict or shark. Right. I'm not closing the beaches. Yeah, that's right. So teaching people who the true villain is in a case, finding out who the villain is, and then exploiting that as best we can to make it really painful for the defendants.
0: So we are going to look at some of your work. I, I think our first program is on December 12th. Is that right, that we have scheduled for a case analysis? I think so. So what case are we going to talk about on that day? Because I know you've got to get some notable results, but one in particular. So what are we doing on December 12th? What was that case about?
1: I'm going to leave that out to you. We can talk about this one with the drunk driver and $51 million. There is one that's recent. I think I can talk about now. i got to go check with what whatever our agreements are. There's another one up in Tennessee. There's also the one I told you about, the slip and fall case. To me, if you can figure out how to get a million dollars on the slip and fall case, that'll get people's attention. But if i I'm, I'm uh, pretty proud of some of these verdicts. So I, I think this $50 million verdict, I think, would be fun to discuss and show them. That's with the Ferrari driver, right? Yeah. The client's name is Christy Lee Rhett. I hate calling it, it's a Lamborghini, but I hate calling it the Lamborghini case because it really takes away from who this case is really about, which is this little girl, you know, Christy that got killed. So what was that
0: case about? So we'll, that's the case we're going to do on December 12th because that way it's, uh, we got it dialed in. And the slip and fall sure. one though, that was, that's a, those are tough cases. So. so what was the case with Christy Lee about? Give us the backstory of that case.
1: So the backstory of the case is very sweet young girls working at a bar restaurant in New Orleans. And just so you understand, Louisiana, we're very proud of our drinking heritage. And so we don't have dram shop rules in Louisiana unless it's a, a minor. And no one in this case was a minor. So the bar serves one of their patrons some drinks, and he's a regular of this bar And he's one of these guys that, you know, he's 30 something years old, trying to impress girls and driving a a Lamborghini and convinces this waitress to go take a ride in his Lamborghini. And uh, if you've ever been through New Orleans, you really don't want to drive a Lamborghini in New Orleans, much less what he was doing, which was 118 miles an hour in a, a residential area. As a matter of fact, right in front of the police station, lost control of the vehicle, hit a retaining wall and killed her, he got ejected and broke his foot. But that's the kind of small part of the story. The rest of the story is is what made the case, which was some of the egregious behavior that this defendant drunk driver did after. Denied everything. Denied he was drunk. His own toxicologist finally, after three hours on the witness stand, admitted he was. He fought his the uh, crash data reporter from his car. He said he was going fifty miles an hour, despite the fact that his car said he was going one hundred and eighteen. He said that's not true. Everything he fought the that the blood test done on his alcohol wasn't him, so they had to do a DNA test to prove it was him. And then there was two things that set the jury off. You want me to talk to you about it now, or you want to talk about it in December?
0: We're going to talk about it a lot more in depth in December, but I just
1: want to kind of get an idea. So there's fifty minutes of video of body cam of him in the hospital and uh they're talking about trying to draw his blood and he's laughing and joking and saying i don't want to get arrested for hitting a curb and in all these smart ass comments joking laughing but the one thing he never asked was what happened to christy he never in 52 minutes i think never even mentioned her name and he thought that she lived. He thought that she was ejected too and was in the bushes, potentially bleeding to death. And he never told anybody to go look for him. The only person he told about her existence was when his lawyer finally showed up. And that's not on Body Cam. So he never mentioned her name, which really pissed the jury off a lot. But then he also, his lawyers could not even, I don't, I'm don't trying to think of the word to use, didn't have the gumption, is the word I'm thinking of, to argue this. But he said, The crash happened because she reached over and grabbed my dick. And so I went from 50 miles an hour to whatever speed, and that's why the wreck happened. And so when the jury heard those two facts, that's all they needed to know that this guy's not somebody they want driving on the road. So they awarded $12 million for each one of the parents. They awarded $2 million for her survival action in the eight seconds before she crashed, but then punitive damages of $26 million against this wealthy drum driver for his actions. It's been a cool story. I sent you the link that one of the news reporters in New Orleans did. It's pretty cool. Right. Kind of like, it was almost like a little movie about the story
0: of this girl and her journey with you as her trial lawyer. So it was a pretty cool, pretty cool thing that they did that kind of helps give more depth to the story than just a verdict, which is
1: important stuff. Oh, yeah. The other part is, is we spend a lot of time on focus groups and we haven't talked about much and we do two a week. But one of the greatest focus groups in a case like that is all the comments that people make, you know, to all the news stories. We collected all those and dissected them into different categories of what people, what side they were on and what they were pissed about. And I really struggled with telling the jury that they should assess some portion of fault to my client because she got in the car with somebody that she knew had been drinking. And, um, we did enough focus groups and had enough information to not never asked him. And I don't even remember if the defendant did defense attorney. I don't think he even asked it. He might've, he was so nervous about this crotch grabbing, hip grabbing thing. He couldn't even think straight,
0: but he talked about the dick grabbing
1: thing. Oh, cause the client insisted on talking about it. Client talked about it. Lawyer never did. He didn't talk about it. He didn't ask him questions about it. He was one of my first witnesses, the drunk driver. And, um, Call some people to set the stage, but he was early on and the lawyer behind me never, the defense lawyer never asked him questions about the crotch grabbing and never said a word about it in closing arguments. And so when I got back up, I'm like, you wonder if you should believe about this crotch grabbing? I know you already have your opinion made up, but how about this lawyer over here sitting next to me that can't even talk about it? Cause he doesn't believe it either. And I just watch people go, nothing says we know more than the little, just a little nod.
0: How did you frame your uh, damages in that case for the the tw- underlying 26 and then the punitive?
1: So a couple of different things we used. My whole team got together. We met at the hotel right by the air courthouse the night before. And we agreed on some numbers, which I, they left me alone with half a bottle of Crown Royal in my thoughts. And so I changed it, but it was still most of their ideas. But at the end of the day, it was framed on two different things. One, the crash happened in May on May sixth. In the four months before, he had gambled and lost. The defendant driver had gambled and lost seven hundred fifty thousand uh, dollars in that period of time. And so we used that. And it was my partner James Pelche's idea, but we used that to frame it around. If this guy can gamble and lose seven hundred fifty thousand dollars a year, we should take a look at that and say, what is this family lost? You know, for the next 20 years, 25 years, 30 years, and framed it around that $750,000 a year. And then, and that was the part of the punitive damage argument as well as the general damages. It may have been Ben Clower that gave me this. If, whoever did, I apologize. It wasn't me, but they had a Van Gogh exhibit in New Orleans that when I did the voir dire, I asked all the jurors, Have you seen the Van Gogh exhibit? And most of them had seen it. And I asked them, you know, what are those paintings worth? They gave me numbers in Voidir of what the paintings were worth. And we used that as an example of if the fire department's going there and their option is to save Christy Lirette or one of these paintings, which one should he choose? And so that was when the jury heard that, they're like, yeah, it was 80 something million dollars is the number they gave me. So, you know, what's a life worth? And if you saw in the, in the um, documentary that the news reporter did, she went and met with the jurors. And that was was the first time I'd seen that. I had not talked to the jurors yet because I knew they were going to do it and I didn't want to interfere in any way. It was very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Empowering, maybe self-satisfaction to hear the jury say, then we noticed this, then we noticed this, then we found out this. And it was all their ideas that we told them. But they didn't say the lawyer told us or someone else told us. It was They came up with the idea themselves, which is a very powerful tool if anybody that's a great trial lawyer knows, once it's the juror's idea, then you got a winner on your hand.
0: That's what we like for the jury to have the idea. All right. So appreciate you coming here today. And for people to register for your webinar, you can go to com, And that's where they can you know register for the webinars and also for Huntington Beach. And then we have Vegas, October 16th through 19th. So we'll We'll figure that one out later, what you want to do there. We'll do a dry run at Huntington Beach. You kind of see what it's all about. But let me ask you, for folks that want to uh, get into contact with you, how would
1: they go about doing that? Maybe they need help with their business, too, besides their trials. I'm not necessarily trying to pimp our business, but my partner, Chad, if you want to grow your business, you just got to meet and talk to this guy. and He'll pick up the phone and talk to you. His name is Chad Dudley. Our phone number, the best way to reach us is... I was just coming down. Everybody has my cell number, which is 225 937 9833. If I don't have your number, I may not answer it immediately because I don't know <laughs> what, what's spam and what's not, but I'll absolutely get back to you. Text me is always the best way. Our law firm is Deadly Debozier, So it's S at deadlydebozier.com, And then CJ Advertising in Nashville. If you need somebody to start getting some cases on the door, that's what we do. That answer your question.
0: That answered the question. See, that's the way you got it. You know what? got to be able to find people. But, and uh, it doesn't matter how great a lawyer you may be. If you don't have a case, you know, I used to be a house painter and I I always thought I was the greatest house painter in, you know, Southeast Michigan. I'm not shit without a contract (laughs) to go paint a house. And we're not shit without a law, without a case.
1: There's no doubt. And you know, the other part is that we can talk about advertising all day long, but the truth is, is that the bigger cases I work on are referred to me by other lawyers, or they're referred to me by prior clients or they are prior clients. That's where you get when you do passionate, great work for people year after year that keep coming back because they want a great lawyer.
0: We all do. Well, thanks
1: a lot, Steve. And we'll see you on December 12th. December 12th. And I'm looking forward to Huntington Beach, June 5th with a lot of great lawyers. Thank you for doing all that, man. It's awesome. Me too. All right, brother. Thank you.
0: Ready to train with the Titans and set records with your verdicts? Register for our live conferences and boot camps at triallawyersuniversity.com. Start getting your reps in before the big event by going to tluondemand.com to gain instant access to live lectures, case analysis, and skills training videos from the trial lawyer champions you love and respect, as well as pleadings, transcripts, PowerPoints, and notes for a roadmap to victory. Join the group that continues to get extraordinary results. Trial Lawyers University. Produced and powered by LawPods.